Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and the two shall be one flesh." This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife, even as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and thy mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee and Thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is there respect of persons with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We read this far in the holy and inspired word of God. And the text is verse 4, Ephesians 6, verse 4. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. There are two words I want to talk about in the introduction of the sermon this morning that relate to being fathers, and those are the words impact and importance. Importance first and then impact. We live in a day where the importance of fatherhood and the role of the father is set aside in society. We live in a society that, on account of feminism, is largely against the role of the father and the rule of the father in the home. It minimizes and dismisses the importance and the necessity of the father, and in its entertainment, it makes jokes and belittles fathers. And this 
attitude in society has become over the last decade somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. When men are displaced, they remove themselves, they abdicate their responsibility, and the results in our society are disastrous and destructive, as you well know. And I could point to that in two areas. One is the spirit of not just independentism, but autonomy and rebellion and anarchy in our society, which comes directly from children growing up in homes without fatherly instruction and correction. They never learn respect. And so there's a lack of respect. There's rebellion at work in our society. And then the second way in which that becomes evident, that disastrous result, is in morality, or I could say immorality, especially the immorality of the LGBTQ expressions of sexuality. The majority of those who fall into this category missed one thing in their childhood, and that was a loving father. One author puts it this way, our society is awash with millions of daughters pathetically seeking the affection that their fathers never gave them. There are myriads of sons who were denied a healthy same-sex relationship with their father who are now spending the rest of their lives in search of their sexual identity through perversion and immorality. And doesn't this bring home this morning the importance of the role of a father. The other word I mentioned was impact, and this morning as we begin, men, I want you to think of the impact that a father has on his children. For you, that ought to be, and you want that to be, a spiritual positive impact. But whether you like it or not, you will have an impact on the life of your children. God has created children to look to their fathers, and the power that you have is the power of life and death to grace your children or to damn your children. This is how important your role is. And so, fathers, your attitudes towards life, towards money and work, towards authority, towards women, your regard for spiritual things, for Scripture and the Word of God and for the church, these attitudes will shape your children. And so you have an impact, and there are a few things that you do that will have as much impact and bear as much fruit as what you do as a father. So doesn't this bring home to us this morning the importance of fathers? And we can be thankful today for godly fathers We can be thankful for the large impact that they have in our lives or in the church. And we we can be grateful especially for God, our Father. We just sang of Him and His tender love, and that is the pattern and the power for us as fathers. So let's consider this morning Ephesians 6, 4 under the theme, God's Word to Fathers. Notice with me, first of all, the duty that we are given, second, the danger that we face, and then third, our dependence on God. First, the duty that we are given. Whose duty is it to raise children? 
the word here places that directly on the shoulders of fathers. And ye fathers, you fathers. Now pay attention. Now listen. The duty to raise your children is not the church's responsibility. It's not something that you leave to an institution like a school. Certainly as Christians, we don't see this as the responsibility of government or society. Children are not to be left to themselves or whatever influences they might stumble upon. But God this morning places this responsibility on your shoulders as fathers. Fathers, ye fathers. This is important in the flow of the epistle of Ephesians. This is a book about the church. The church is elected and chosen. The church is a body in Jesus Christ. There's unity in the church and each of the members of the church fulfilling their specific place and role in the church. And foundational to that church is the family. And that's the passage that we read beginning in chapter 5 and verse 21 when he gets to the practical section of this book. And he's spoken about marriage, foundational for, for an orderly life in, in society and also for order as Christians. And then he speaks to husbands and wives on their respective roles, then to children on their calling to honor father and mother. And then he singles out, as it were, as the zenith, the high point, the central thing, fathers and you fathers. Your key in this. And that needs to be emphasized to us for two reasons. One is the busyness of life and material pursuits so that the years in which we have children with us in our homes quickly pass away. Today we do not live in an agricultural age where fathers take their boys off to work with them, but you go off to work. And so this needs to be emphasized. Fathers... And along with that, our nature is selfish. And it's so easy for us to assign this or to abdicate this to somebody else, to walk away, to hand over, to delegate, and meanwhile pursue our own career or pursue material things or pursue pleasure or pursue things that are of interest to us that will in the end all turn up empty when we should be investing ourselves in this crucial thing, the life, the soul's of our children. How seriously do you take your role as a father, men? How seriously do you take your role as a father? How intentional are you in your daily responsibilities towards your children? How involved are you in their correction, their encouragement, their instruction? What will they say in 10 years? Will they say, my father, he shaped my perspectives, my beliefs, my behavior, because he was there? Or are we leaving all this to our wives or other institutions? And the word comes to us this morning, and you fathers. This is God speaking, and just as in the earlier verses, children, 
obey your parents in the Lord. God calls the attention with his word to children, so now. And fathers, you fathers. And it's not just a matter of answering to God, but it's a matter of stewardship. Children are the heritage of the Lord, and we are going to stand before God someday and give an account of Matthew chapter 25, the use of the talents that God has given to us. What do we do with the resources that God put into our hands? What do we do with the responsibilities that we had? What do we do with the time and the talents and the gifts that God gave to us? What do we do as stewards of the children that God put in our care? In the midst of a society of failing fathers, are you a light? Are you different as a father? You fathers. So there's a duty here that God gives to fathers. Now what is that duty more specifically? And now we're going to talk especially about the second part of the verse, and there are three ideas, three main ideas here. You fathers, here's your duty. Bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Three ideas. Bring up, and then nurture, and then admonition. Here the King James translation is not entirely accurate or helpful, Really, the idea here is to nurture them in the training and instruction of the Lord. Those are the three ideas we want to look at. Nurturing, training, and instruction. This is our duty. First, nurture or nourish. And that's the words, bring them up, bring them up. The idea is of of creating an environment in which... Something can grow and prosper uh, as it grows and develops. So if you have fish, they have to have the right kind of environment in which to survive. If you have plants in your home, they need to have the right kind of uh, environment, the right amount of sun, the right amount of fertilizer and water and so on. And the idea here, that's the exact idea here, to, to... Create a nourishing environment for your children. You fathers, bring them up. It's the same word that's used in chapter 5, verse 29, when it speaks of love for self and love for your wife, to nourish and cherish them. This is what is required, fathers, with regard to your children. You need to pay attention to the environment in which you're raising them. And that needs to be especially a loving environment. That's the idea here of bringing them up, to be tender, to be gentle. John Calvin translates it this way, let them be kindly cherished so that spiritually and emotionally they can develop in a healthy environment. And this is something that you must Give attention to, just as you would give attention to something that you are growing or some animal that you're caring for. Bring them up. Nurture them. 
And now you think of the words that we sang, the tender love a father has for all his children dear, such love the Lord bestows on them who worship him in fear. And then that psalm continues, he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust, God is tender. And Father, there's nothing, fathers, there's nothing more manly, there's nothing more, I'll say, godlike as fathers, as God is our Father than to show your children that you love them and to nurture an environment of tenderness and affection in your home. And that begins with them knowing, of course, that you're deeply in love with their mother, with them seeing that love, with them wanting to be drawn into the warmth of that love in your marriage, into that communication, into that fellowship And isn't that exactly what we mean when we say that God is our Father? God, the Father, and His Son dwell together in the Trinity in a perfect communion. And there's a richness and a warmth that's described in the Scripture. In John 1 verse 18, the Son dwelt in the bosom of the Father. In John 17, Jesus prays that we may know the love that the Father had for Him before the foundation of the world. And as I hear that as a child of God, my heart reaches out, yearns for God's embrace. So men, love your wives. And let your children be drawn and grow up in the warmth of that embrace and that love in your home. So that's the first thing here. Bring them up is to to nourish them, to cherish them. Love. What is anything without love? Anything without love is nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, though I have all knowledge and all faith, so that I could remove mountains, without love, it's nothing. This is where it starts. Do you love your children? Then second, and here's the word in the King James, nurture, there's the training of the children. And this word nurture has in it the ideas of training and discipline. It has in view not only the process that we have to discipline our children, but also the purpose that with our discipline we have a goal in mind, their spiritual training. And so we are called here in this word to train our children through appropriate, repeated chastisements or punishments. It's the word that's used in Luke chapter 23, verse 16, by Pilate when he says that he would chastise Jesus and then let him go. And he means, of course, a physical, corporal punishment. You fathers, here's the second part of your duty. Now, there's two very important things to see about this in the text. We have three ideas here, and we have to see the connections. And I want to point to those connections, especially as we talk about your role to train with discipline. The first is this, that it must be a loving discipline. We just talked about the loving aspect, nurturing, cherishing. And it's in that environment now that you administer this training and this discipline. 
It's not biblical discipline where love is missing. It's true that a neglect of discipline in the Bible is pointed out is not love. If you, if you neglect to discipline your son and spare the rod, the Bible says you hate the soul of your child. But that doesn't mean that everywhere where there is discipline, there's love. No, there must be a loving discipline that is administered. And more important than your children experiencing your anger and your wrath about something is that they experience your Love, because it's when they know your love that they will experience your displeasure at their sin. Isn't that true in relation to God? David numbered the people. Nathan the prophet came to him and offered him three things, famine, war, or pestilence. And you remember the answer of David. David says, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercies are great. David knew the tender love of God. And he said, I don't want the enemies of God coming on us. I don't want famine. I just want to fall into the hands of God. And you know that God brought this pestilence, 70,000 died, but the Lord stopped it after just a day. But David knew his father's love, and and, and it was in that 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 he knew he had displeased God. Let us fall into the hands of God of the Lord. So Hebrews chapter 12 says, despise not the chastening of the Lord, for whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. So there's the one connection. But then the other connection is in what follows, and that's the word that's here translated admonition. So this training and this discipline must be accompanied by admonition. That is, As much weight as we put on discipline, or as the Scripture puts on discipline, there must be accompanying instruction from the Word of God. It shouldn't be without instruction. So what is taught is impressed through discipline. What is taught in words is impressed on the mind and the heart through discipline. Proverbs 22 verse 15 puts it this way, that foolishness is bound in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it from him. And what it's really saying is this, is you can talk to your children and you can teach them with words till you're blue in the face, but there are times when a child has to to have that, as it were, impressed on the conscience with discipline, with training. And the two must must go together. Galatians says, what a man sows, this is what he will reap. Proverbs 23 verse 14 says, that by the rod you save his soul from hell. And in a sense, what God is telling us to do is here to use a lesser consequence so that we can warn our children of the greater consequence of sin and disobedience. Isn't that true in the way that God deals with us? What a mercy that he chastens us. And he brings, we could say, lighter consequences and judgments into our life as he did in the life of David to spare our souls from the greater judgment and punishment of the fire of hell. So, It follows love, and it's accompanied by instruction. It should never stand alone. And what that means is this, that whenever you 
use the rod with your children, there must be appropriate verbal instruction directed at the heart of the child. The rod and reproof, Proverbs 29 verse 15 speaks of the rod and reproof. Together they give wisdom. And the child must ever think of discipline as simply an expression of your rage or as a reaction or punishment to what they did wrong, but a reinforcement of the Word of God. So those are the three things here, tenderness, training, and instruction. Tenderness, discipline, and instruction. The third thing, then, is that that word that's translated admonition, and you notice that it's got a modifying phrase, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Teaching, instruction of the Lord. And that means our instruction of our children must be biblical, and the only thing that will be effective in the hearts, to change the hearts and the minds of our children from the way of sin is the the power of the Word of God. Your wisdom will not change your children. We must parent them with the Scriptures, with the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to say that all Scripture is given for instruction, for admonition, that the man of God may become mature in, in the faith. So it's the Word of God. That must be the content of the instruction to our children. Now, I want us to think about this in a helpful way this morning. What do we mean when we speak of the instruction or the content content of our instruction being the Word of God? Well, we mean certainly this, that we use the Word of God and impress its meaning on the hearts of our children. But there are three specific things we, we, we must understand that the Word of God is aiming at. Not just with our children, but also with us as well. First, this instruction is an instruction that's aimed at the salvation of our children, at their souls, at their eternal state. Second, this is an instruction that's aimed at their view of the world in which they live and the place that God has given them in this world. And then third, this instruction is aimed at their Awareness of who they are, their sin and their place as Christians in this world. Those are the areas that the Word of God addresses in our lives. How do we understand God and ourselves in reference to Him? How do we understand the world in which God has created created us? And then how do we understand ourselves? And then those are, I say, helpful. They can be helpful simply for something as simple as reading the Scriptures with our children. Here are the three questions to ask when we read a passage. What does this teach us about God? What does it teach us about 
God and his son, Jesus Christ, and our standing in relation to him? Does it teach us something of the holiness of God? Does it teach us something of the justice of God? Does it teach us something of the grace of God? Does it call us to repent in reference to God, to obey this God, to believe in his son, Jesus Christ? What does it teach us about God? And then, in the second place, this important question, what does it teach us about the world that God has created? How does it shape our worldview as we live in this world? What does it tell us about our life in relation to the things that are going on around us? What does it tell us about the creation as God has given that to us? And how does it call us to be stewards in this creation? What does it tell us about the times in which we live? Does it help, help to explain the abounding wickedness or the current events? And the Word of God will speak those things to us to help us to shape our view in this world. How does it call us to separate spiritually from the world? So what does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about this world? And then really third, what does it teach us about ourselves? And especially this, what does it call us to think or to do? How has it instructed us so that we are thinking in biblical ways? How does this call us to do something as we live our lives in this world before God? The scriptures are full of content in all these areas. So you bring them up in the nurture and the admonition, the instruction of the Lord. Now, as this text addresses fathers, it points to one great danger that we face as men who have authority over our children. And the great danger is called to, we're called to, to give attention to is not only recorded here in Ephesians chapter 6, but you find it also in Colossians chapter 3. The great danger is provoke not your children to wrath, provoking our children to anger. This, of course, presents to us parenting and being fathers as a, as a rather delicate business, something that we have to do carefully and that we need to be busy constantly reevaluating so that we're examining ourselves, especially when there's tension between us and our children. Have I provoked my children to wrath? And then think of the way that Jesus speaks of conflict situations that you have to take the beam out of your own eye. And we have to approach our relationship with our children with that kind of self-examination and that kind of humility, a readiness to, to recognize how we have provoked our children to sinful behavior. What is it to provoke your child to wrath? It means this, that by your sinful behavior as a parent, you produce in the child an anger or a bitterness so that they become exasperated and irritated by what you have done, your sin. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that we can never do something that might upset our children. No, there's a position of authority and, and, and they will be unhappy when we discipline them in, in biblical ways. They have to know, your children have to know that you're the parent, that you have the authority from God and that you're not here 
in this relationship with them to please them, to do what they desire, but to please God and to do what's best for them. Children are not little angels, are they? They're sinners that need authoritative direction in their lives. You have to go against their will. A child left to himself, Proverbs 29 verse 15 says, brings his mother to shame. But at the same time, there are things that we can do that unnecessarily bring anger and bitterness into a relationship with our children. If we don't recognize that in our day-to-day life, we will have children that will remain bitter and angry against us when they become adults, and we may even embitter them and turn them against the things of God. And that's why this warning is so important. Provoke not your children to wrath. Colossians 3 verse 21 puts it this way. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. See, this is what happens. They become discouraged, disenchanted. And so we have to take a serious look at this. We shouldn't have the attitude, I'm in authority regardless of my faults. My children are going to listen to me, submit to me. No, we have to see that we are under God and that his word must govern our admonition and instruction of our children. So how can we sin against our children and provoke them to anger or to wrath? I want to mention a number of ways that we can do that. The first is this, that we can provoke our children to wrath and bitterness by overindulgence. If a a child always gets what it wants from the parent, and if they never learn to respect the correction and the advice of the parent then those children will never love the parent. Proverbs chapter 13, 24, again, He that spareth his rod hateth his son. We mustn't overindulge or spoil our children. You know what it means to be spoiled rotten. And you know what we say about spoiled children? Spoiled brats. So there's a great danger there that a parent will say, well, I don't want to go against the will of my child. No child needs to know loving authority. You provoke your children to wrath and bitterness. In the end, they become discouraged because they've never experienced from a father correction and discipline so that they learn respect. And isn't that the the overflowing problem in the immorality in our society today? But then a second way that you might provoke your children to wrath is by unreasonable rules and unreasonable discipline. The, The rules and the standards that we place upon our children must be reasonable, they must be clearly communicated, and if they're not, when we discipline our children they will become angry. And there are times when we ought to listen to our children before hastily 
correcting them. Proverbs 18, verse 13 says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. We shouldn't rush in. We shouldn't be distant disciplinarians with our children. We should never discipline them driven by our emotions. But there's got to be a justice and a fairness in the way that we do it, so that we're not motivated by our being tired or our having a bad day or things like that dictating our relationship to our children. This will certainly provoke them to anger. And then think of this. Discipline is something, as we're following Proverbs 18 and now Matthew 18, is something that shouldn't be done to shame our children publicly. Proverbs eight, uh, Matthew 18, Jesus says, if, if you have something against another, go and work it out between you and him alone. And doesn't that also apply to the discipline of our children? You deal with it between you and the child so that we don't shame them and disgrace them. Or certainly that will be something that will provoke them. To anger. A third way that we might provoke our children to wrath is by favoritism. God blesses many of us with multiple children, and if a parent will play favorites and compare their children to one another, then certainly that will breed bitterness in the heart of the child. You remember that Isaac favored Esau and that Jacob favored Joseph. And the results in both of those homes were bitterness between the siblings. And each child that God has given to us is unique and to be loved as much as the other, not compared. Children shouldn't be pressured to achieve beyond their capacity, especially in areas of academics music, and sport. Yes, they have to be faithful in the use of their gifts, but our goal is not to raise children who are going to be successful or wealthy or educated, but rather children who love and serve the Lord and are faithful to Him in whatever position they have. God hasn't given us children so that we can live vicariously through them and we can be proud of their achievements. Raising children is not a competition with others, but they're here for God's glory, not ours. And certainly that will breed bitterness in the soul of a child. A fourth way that we might provoke our children to wrath is by always and only being negative, critical, and never encouraging and loving. And so we are condescending. We make jokes of our children. And we embitter them. We humiliate them through, on account of their mistakes when they're children. And they, they embarrass us. So we will discipline them for just being children. There's a place for a child to be a child. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. Children don't need to 
be, or children should not be put down by their parents because they're children. They need love. They need encouragement. They need the kind of love described in 1 Corinthians 13 that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and endures all things that never rejects them. And isn't that the way that God communicates his love towards us as his children and what children need from parents? And certainly children would become embittered when they're always humiliated by their parents. And then a final way, and perhaps this is the one that has the the most long-term effect spiritually. I said earlier that to provoke our children to wrath can be to turn them in the end against God and against spiritual things. They become discouraged, Colossians 3, verse 21. And the primary way that we might do that is by hypocrisy. That we live one kind of life publicly, and then we live a different kind of life behind the closed doors of the home. We might look like the best of Christians on Sundays and to our neighbors, but the children know what goes on behind closed doors. And if our life doesn't match the expectations that we have for our children, especially, they'll not only follow our example of hypocrisy, but they'll be turned away from any genuine Christianity by that hypocrisy. Godliness, genuine godliness, is the way that we do not provoke our children to wrath. Now you see the two parts in the text, the positive calling at the end of the text, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and the negative at the beginning, provoke not your children to wrath. That, that verb, provoke them not to wrath, has the idea of stop doing this. Stop Provoking your children to wrath. The verbs in the second part of the verse are put in the continuous. Stop provoking your children to wrath, but instead keep on nurturing them and training them in the admonition of the Lord. And doesn't the word come to us this morning and help us to see not only where we've failed, but our need, our dependence on the grace of God. You see, when it comes to being a parent, and when it comes to being a father and a husband who has authority in the home, too often we have all the answers and we lean on our own understanding. We barge into situations rather than approaching them prayerfully and humbly. And we're unwilling to acknowledge what we've done wrong, lest we lose respect, we think. And what this shows, brothers in Christ, is that the real obstacle to being an effective father is self. I get in the way. My pride, my desires, 
this gets in the way, doesn't it? And just as we need to learn tenderness with our children, so we need to learn humility and repentance. When last did you repent of wrongs done against your children? When last did you go to one of your children and say, I was wrong, I sinned against you? You want your children to learn true humility. There's nothing so, I'll say, healing for the bitterness in the soul of a child than that kind of humble repentance. So we get ourselves, as it were, out of the way. And we instead rely on God. You see that in the text. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Not your words, not your wisdom, not your understanding, not your experience, not your ideas, but the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And so men in humility, we need to be men of prayer who are depending on God, who know the word, and who are patterned after God and his fatherly love for us. So I want to close with these two thoughts. Let's think about the kind of father that God is to us, his tenderness, his discipline, his love for his son, his instruction, Let's remember how faithful God is to us when we fail. How restoring he is, how patient he is when we have to be disciplined, how constant he is in his instruction, how present he is in his love and his care. And Jesus taught us to pray, our Father. And Jesus himself, you remember, lived in the constant consciousness of the fact that he stood before his heavenly Father. And he teaches us as his brothers and sisters to pray that way so that we may know the tender love of the merciful Father, the wise Father for us. Men, do you know Father's love? Show that love for your children. And then finally this. I started with it, the importance and the impact. The time that we have with our children is oh so brief. Gone in a short while. I know this from experience. Let's make every moment matter. Let's make every interaction profitable. Don't wish away the years of having your children in your home. 
intentionality. I first learned that word from a father with young children. Intentionality. And he was telling me, I need to be more intentional as a father. Let's be intentional with the time that we have with our children. So that seriously, deliberately, we're tender. We're training them with discipline. And we're instructing them from the Word of God. And then let's not let our example detract from that. Amen. Father, we thank Thee for the privilege that we have to bring up children. And today we thank Thee for the careful instruction of Scripture to help us in this great task. Bless our labor, we pray. Not only for our children's sake, but for the glory of thy name. And we thank thee, Father, for bringing us into thy family, that we can know thee as our Father through Jesus Christ, that we can see the wonder of thy love for thy Son, that we can experience that ourselves. And we pray, Father, that the tenderness of that love and the constancy of that love Maybe something that directs us also in guiding and living as parents, and especially now fathers with our children. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen.